In your community analysis, if you haven't already done this, you need to identify the geographic scope of your nonprofit. So if it's a country, I think you guys had said Nicaragua, okay. Or if you pick a city within Nicaragua, you could do that. If you pick Nashville, you need to do an assessment of that community, sort of a basic demographics of that city or country. So say you're doing music education in Nashville, you could say there's already a hundred nonprofits that are doing music education, but here's a niche that we're going to fill. Or say you're going to be working in public schools, you would say how many public schools are there. Any type of data about the community that would be informative for anyone starting up a nonprofit like yours in that community. So I don't want like everything there is to know about that city or community, but basically the stuff that's most pertinent and relevant. So if you're doing food distribution, you could talk about the levels of poverty in that community or something like that. So that's for the community analysis. And then the elevator pitch. So we're going to be doing those a week from today. These really need to be polished. They're one minute long pitches. And what I want you to do is submit a script of your pitch. So you know, when you hear elevator pitches, they seem extemporaneous. They just flow out and they're, they're very natural and, and authentic. But almost everyone that's out there has been scripted to a T. I mean, every single word is mapped out. The person doesn't just get up there and say, well, let's just wing it, because it doesn't work. One, you end up talking more than a minute, and then you start rambling, and you start saying things that are off point. So what I want you to do is just to think through, okay, what is my pitch, and literally write it out, and then send it to me the night before. And that'll help you, because then when you get up here, you know what you're going to say. Now when you get up here, I don't want you to sit there and read the script, but it's one minute long, so you can memorize it, more or less, and make it feel natural and personal. So that's for the elevator pitch. Today we're going to talk about nonprofit law, a very exciting topic. Hopefully we can make it interesting. What I want to start with is a Socrative to get a sort of baseline understanding of what people's knowledge of nonprofit law is. And this isn't going to count towards anything specific. So the room number is right here. And the first question is, can nonprofits make a profit? Yes or no? True or false? And all of these questions will be answered by the end of class. So if you're not clear what the answer is, let's see what our... Okay, so half the class says yes, they can make a profit, and half the class says no, they can't make a profit. So that's good to know. And one of them has to be right. So the next one is nonprofits cannot engage in political activity. Okay, so there's more consensus on this. Three-quarters of the class says basically they can engage in political activity. And then the next question, nonprofits do not have to pay taxes. Okay, let's see how we do. Nonprofits do not have to pay taxes. Two-thirds say that they do not have to pay taxes. One-third says they do. And the final question, nonprofits cannot pay high salaries. Oh, good. You guys at least got one. There's consensus. For the most part, 8% of the class still says that they cannot pay high salaries. All four of these questions, by the end of class, we will have addressed them. But this, this gives me good reason that doing this class session would actually be helpful and beneficial because there's lack of clarity or consensus on what nonprofit law is. So let's move on. We had talked about the NFL being a nonprofit. Some of you even in the memos were saying, oh wait, how can they be a nonprofit? Like that just 
doesn't seem right, and, and what's the origins of that, and how did they become a nonprofit? And I found this video that gives quick three-minute explanation of why the NFL is a nonprofit. But what's interesting about this video, and in, in the description of the NFL, it explains a lot of nonprofit law in it, like how do organizations become nonprofits and what qualifies as a nonprofit. So even though the NFL is an extreme case, it actually provides a good baseline for what are nonprofits and why do they exist and why would the NFL be categorized as a nonprofit. The NFL has taken a lot of criticism recently for a number of obvious missteps. That extra attention has also led to people criticizing them for less obvious things, like their tax-exempt status. The NFL makes an estimated $9.5 billion annually, yet their head office doesn't pay any taxes. How is that fair or even possible? Well, prior to 1966, there were two major professional football organizations in the U.S., the NFL and the AFL. They wanted to merge, but due to antitrust laws, that wasn't possible without getting Congress involved. So in 1966, Congress passed Public Law 89-800, allowing the NFL to merge despite those antitrust laws. <coughs> While they were at it, they also changed the tax code to give the NFL tax-exempt status. They're included in Section 501c6 of the Internal Revenue Code, which gives tax-exempt status to trade associations like Chambers of Commerce, real estate boards, and since 1966, professional football leagues. We can't speak as to why each individual congressperson voted for this exact change in the tax code, but we can mention that the legislation was introduced and pushed through Congress by two Louisiana politicians. And then only 11 days after the merger was approved, Louisiana was awarded its first NFL franchise. Those are the facts surrounding the merger. So should the NFL be tax exempt? While most of the $9 billion in NFL profits is funneled back to the 32 NFL franchises through a for-profit company called NFL Ventures. That company and those 32 teams do pay taxes. So most of the $9 billion is taxed. It's the money that goes to the NFL league office that's not taxed. That money includes the estimated $44.2 million that the NFL paid NFL commissioner Roger Goodell in 2012. So some people still argue that their tax-exempt status is unfair, while others argue that we may not be talking about a lot of added tax revenue and that changing the tax code might not even be worth it. The NFL's 2012 IRS statement shows they actually finished the year millions of dollars in the red. So that year, we'd be talking about literally no money. Still, some would argue that it is the principle of the matter, not the revenue. The NFL is being treated as a trade association, but it's not really acting like one. Anyone can join a normal trade association as long as they're offering a similar product or work in that industry. Obviously, that's not true of the NFL. You can't create your own football team and become an NFL affiliate. You can't even apply to be a part of their trade organization at all. Then there's the moral argument to consider. Traditional nonprofits <coughs> contribute to the general good. But that's not the main goal of the NFL. And with the recent controversies around domestic violence, the effects of concussions on its players, and one particular franchise's insensitive branding, some could argue that they may not be contributing to the general good at all. That's the NFL, some of the backstory. Yeah. I thought last year was the first year they became a for-profit. Yes, so they actually, that's great. Because of things like this and all the negative press, and it became more and more public knowledge of their nonprofit status. And so exactly last year, they relinquished their nonprofit status. 
but legally, they're still allowed to be. There's very clear laws that let you know whether you can or can't be a nonprofit. And so what she was saying was, does Congress want to change the tax code, the tax law, push out groups like the NFL? And they're like, well, no, because it's too difficult. Other professional leagues operate the same way. And so if you think about it, it falls under the category of a local hockey league. Pop Warner Football is a nonprofit organization, but it's literally football. There are literally baseball associations fall under the same status of the NFL. It's just the Little League baseball team doesn't make nearly as much money. But the important thing is, is that there's laws that clearly state whether or not you can or can be a nonprofit. And for you as your organization, it's thinking through, does my organization meet the criteria of being a nonprofit? And the NFL did, but they, uh, on their own volition, said, okay, we can be, but we're not going to be. We're going to pay taxes. But then, as we saw in the video, they often have a net loss because of expenses that they have as a league, and so then they end up not paying any taxes still. To them, it's probably a good PR move to say, okay, we're no longer nonprofit, and it's actually not going to hurt us that much to lose that status. Any other things stand out as you watch the video? Just either interesting things or more... I have a question. Yeah. So when you turn from nonprofit to for-profit, you just start paying taxes. Like, they just start paying taxes this year. They don't owe taxes from so the prior, right? They don't owe taxes retroactively, but say you have assets as a nonprofit. So assets would be, say you have an endowment, or say you have a building, or say you have cars, vans for running your programs. All of those, all of your assets, have to go to another nonprofit. They have to maintain their tax-exempt activities or purposes. Say you own a nonprofit and you have these buildings and cars and facilities, and then you say, oh, we're going to shut this down. You can't just pocket all of that or take that with you. It actually has to be donated to another organization that is engaged in nonprofit activities. So I don't know. Clearly, the NFL has assets. I think they do. Maybe they've organized it in such a way that they don't. But any nonprofit that shuts down or any nonprofit that becomes a for profit, they have to set aside their assets that were accumulated as a nonprofit and figure out how to donate them. So then this raises a larger question of, and we talked about it the first day of class, but maybe you'll have more insights of why should nonprofits as a whole be exempt from paying taxes? Like, why should the NFL be allowed to be exempt from paying taxes, whereas McDonald's? isn't exempt from paying taxes. Like, what is it about nonprofits like the local YMCA or Mother Hubbard's? Why shouldn't they have to pay taxes? Yeah? Because they're giving a community in a way that taxes would give to the community. So okay. So their services are said to be the taxes in a way. Okay, yeah. Uh, so they don't have to pay extra on top of that because the profit that's coming in is going to go to those services most yes. likely. Yeah, on one level of saying is they're providing a public good, and then you could say, I'll use McDonald's as the example, they're providing a private good. You sort of have to pay to get the McDonald's food, and then McDonald's can take those profits and pocket them, this private transaction, whereas a public good is it's like a park. Say there's a nonprofit a neighborhood association that wanted to open up a park, and so that park Either they could charge admission into the park, or they could say it's a public good, and you know we raise this money. You know the city 
could have provided the park, but they didn't, and we stepped in and said, we're going to provide the park. That's why they shouldn't have to pay taxes on the revenue they gain to provide the park. So there's public good, there's private good, and there's one that fits in the middle, which is where the NFL fits, and it's a member of goods. So if there's this organization that wants to set up services for its members to sort of help their professionalization or to help their health and well-being and charge member dues, it falls right in between this public good and private good is these member goods. And so the best example, the one that you might be able to relate to the most is like the YMCA. So the YMCA is a nonprofit, but you still have membership dues that you pay to use their facilities. Now, their dues are a lot less than like 24-hour fitness or any other private healthcare facility. And what the YMCA does is they don't have shareholders that get earnings on the profit they make from their membership dues. All the membership dues get funneled back in to the Y. And so they can keep their costs down because they don't have shareholders who are saying, hey, let's increase membership dues so that we can increase our profit and get a bigger return on our investment. The member goods is things like the YMCA or like the National Association of Realtors, which is a professionalization organization. If you're in the real estate business, you become a member and they would give you information and resources on how to be a better realtor, but it's a member-serving good. As you're thinking about your nonprofit, you can think, is it a public good, providing a public service, is it a member good, or is it a private good, and that will help you know what category you fit into. The definition for nonprofits is that organizations that have a public or member-serving purpose and then don't distribute profits. And so this don't distribute profits thing is key. So the way a typical business works, especially one that's a, a publicly traded company, is that you have stockholders, people who have invested in your company, and each quarter you give out your financial statements of how well you performed as an organization. And if you perform poorly financially, then the value of your stock is going to go down. And that means less profits, whereas if you perform well and increase your profits, then the stock value will go up. And so there's always this trade back and forth between your investors and your organization. And that's what a private company is, is they're wanting to maximize the return on investment. So it's all about making a profit and increasing profits. Nonprofits don't play that game. They don't go back to the funders and say, hey, we had a good year, let's give you a dividend, or let's redistribute the money that we've earned. There's no redistribution of profits, but the nonprofit does make a profit, or does have revenue. So at the YMCA, for example, that charges member dues, it makes a profit. They funnel it back into the organization to help the organization grow, and maybe they set up a scholarship fund, or maybe they Ultimately, if they can scale at a larger size, they can reduce the overall membership cost. Because if they have more members, they can offer it at a lower cost. So they can make a profit, and they do make a profit, but it's what they do with that profit. So the executive director doesn't at the end of the year say, hey, look at how much we extra we made and pocket them or give themselves a bonus. No, it has to go back into the nonprofit, go back into the public serving or member serving activities. So then the other question would be, why should people receive a tax deduction for their donations to charities? If you donate to the NFL, which I'm sure all of you do, can that be tax deductible? Only certain nonprofits that can be tax deductible. How do you differentiate? So there's all these nonprofits out there, 
but probably if you donate money to the NFL, it's not tax deductible, whereas if you donate money to Mother Hubbard, it is. Why are some charities or nonprofits contributions tax deductible? Yeah. Is it how they divide in the tax code versus the C3, C6, C4? Okay. So it's what type of nonprofit they are. And do you know the differences or? Uh, C3 is, I know you can get deductions for C3, C4, political, I think C6 is whatever they said, small townships and stuff like that. And so then larger picture, why would one categorization qualify and why would one not? I think some of it had to do mainly with the fact of the gear of the organization. So it's against federal law for political donations to come back to you in the form of a tax write-off uh -huh. to keep people's hands clean. That's why there's a C4 and things like that. Mm -hmm. So it's the activities of the yeah. organization. Anyone else? Yeah. In regards to that, though, wouldn't that be kind of like a private transaction because you're getting benefit directly from, like, donating and like purchasing a ticket to a game. Yeah. Whereas if you were donating to a charity, you wouldn't necessarily be receiving any private good. It would be giving to the common cause. Uh -huh. Yeah, so you're getting some benefit back. So, you know, one example would be, so Indiana University is a nonprofit or any other university is a nonprofit. Shouldn't your tuition be viewed as a donation, a tax deductible donation? What Jordan is saying is right. Like when you pay your tuition, you are making a contribution to the university, but you're getting a benefit back from it. And so the key is, are you directly benefiting from your contribution? And if you are, then it's not tax deductible. Whereas if it's going towards a public good, then it's tax deductible. There's 27 different categorizations for nonprofits, which is just crazy, and especially once you go down to like numbers 21, 22, 23, they're very obscure and strange, and I don't know how they got written into the tax code. But the ones that are most important, so you've probably heard the term 501c3, but you don't know what it means, and maybe you've heard a distinction like, oh no, we're a 501c4, not a 501c3. This will maybe help you understand the differentiation, but really the most important one, and the one that's most common, is 501c3, and that's the one that we think of when we think of nonprofits. And they're basically charitable organizations or private foundations. And private foundations conduct charitable activities. So, in a sense, their private foundations are the ones who gather the money and then redistribute it to nonprofits that are doing charitable activities. It's any type of public serving aspect, like charity. So, it's all the education. Uh, education-based organizations, healthcare like hospitals, any type of social service type organization, anything where the public is being served by the organization. So it's, it's a, a charitable organization or a private foundation. So in a sense, you can donate money to Indiana University as a donation and it will be tax deductible because, and that's different from tuition, you know, as an alumni, you can donate to the IU Scholarship Fund, and that would be tax deductible because IU is a public serving institution. It's just that your tuition dollars can't be tax deductible because you're getting a direct benefit from it, whereas a donation, you're not getting a direct benefit yet. Um, so where nonprofits can, in certain ways, function as a for-profit entity, you know, like in collecting revenue from um, their activities, can for-profit companies behave in the way of a non-profit company and receive some sort of tax-exempt status 
or would a donation to a for-profit company that acts in the in like the common good for society can that be tax deductible, or is there no possibility? And that's what we talked about in class: is these hybrid organizations. The law is becoming more flexible to allow for this. So. The extreme case would be a private company, for-profit company, no one makes donations to it. They invest in it. So I still might be very excited about a particular company, and I want to see it be successful, and so I'll invest in it by buying stock in it, and then I'll probably get a profit from it. And so it's how you give to a for-profit. For these hybrid organizations, if you're starting a nonprofit and you're like, okay, I, I kind of want to do something that's in between, you're allowed to do it, and you just need to clearly separate. These are our public serving activities, and you almost have separate bank accounts. So anything that's for the public serving, you can accept donations for it and then use it towards those activities. But then say you also run a bookstore on the side as a revenue generating thing. It can be under the whole umbrella, but you have to have separate accounts for it. So whenever you sell books and you get profit off those books, that profit has to be taxed, unless you're taking it and putting it directly into the education program that you're running. Yeah. So then, let's say that you had a public forum for discussing environmental or uh -huh. you know, social causes that yeah. is for the common good. You know, anybody can come to these yeah. things or post online to be in that forum, and you accept donations for that. Uh -huh. Can that be in that separate entity of the nonprofit? bank account? Uh-huh. Oh, that can. Yeah, so, I mean, you've probably experienced this. You show up to a public forum. So we went to the thing at Bloomington Convention Center, some event. And it was interesting because it said suggested donation was $5 a person. And I was like, well, that's kind of weird. Like, just tell me how much you want me to pay. But indirectly, they are, but they're not charging you admission. It was a public event. Now, this was clearly a nonprofit because what they were doing is whatever I gave was voluntary. I was allowed to go in for free, but as I'm going in for free, if I want to make a donation to this organization, I can. It's a good model to use because they're not charging admission. If they were charging for admission, it'd be sort of like a movie theater saying, if you want to watch this movie, you got to pay this amount, and that wouldn't be a public good. So what they did was they take those donations as donations and build the organization. I have a question. Yeah. So I went to summer to the Museum of Natural History, and like, if you showed your student ID, and I'm pretty sure I feel like they're like probably a nonprofit, but they charge admission. Uh huh. But they, if you have the student ID, they would like suggest that you donate, but you don't have to pay to get in if you're a student. Yeah. Of like that. It's the same thing, and it might seem random. Like, well, why is it this way? And why do they say suggested donation versus admissions? Because everyone ends up paying five bucks anyway, and it's so that. And again, their intentions are good because they want to create a public good. And really, if I didn't have any money, they would still want me to participate. And so they're doing it as a way to make sure that they're following the law and so they don't have to pay taxes on it. And then also, I could, if I wanted to, when I did my taxes, I could say, oh yeah, I remember paying five bucks for this. It would be taxed. Mm -hmm. So then, just to clarify, yeah. even, a four, even like an LLC, would be able to have those operations and be tax exempt for them if they clarify that? They would have to, and we're going to get into this, they would have to register as a nonprofit. Oh, they would? Yeah. The organ, they would have to. Okay. Yeah. So a great example would be Google is a private company. But the Google Foundation, I think it's called Google Org or something, it's very similar. It's a nonprofit. And actually, Google Corporation donates money to Google Org 
in the Google org, there's public service activities. And so you would set up your own nonprofit right next to your for profit. Yeah. And would Google get like tax deductible for donating? Yes. Even yeah, though yeah. they're like the same company? Well, but they have very different activities. Many corporations donate to charities. Like, you know, almost every major corporation has its own foundation or charitable arm. And they do that because if I'm an executive with an organization, I want to have high control over where my money goes. And so I'd rather give it to a foundation that I have high trust in and that's sort of aligned with my mission and values and stuff. And so, anyway, say you go to a church and you donate to your church. Well, isn't that kind of strange? Because that's your church. Like, why are you giving to your church? Well, of course you would give to your church because you believe in what they're doing. So you do have the freedom to choose which nonprofit you give your money to. But I see what you're saying. It's like, well, that's kind of sneaky. <laughs> if Google Org is following the law and using it as a public charity, it's not up to us to say, well, that's a good charity and that's a bad charity. It's up to the donors. If there is a bad charity out there, then the donors will vote by not giving their money. So even the Red Cross has gone through a rocky period ever since like Hurricane Katrina. There's been investigations into how they're spending their money or the earthquake in Haiti. And the Red Cross came under a lot of fire because they weren't redistributing the money in the ways that they said they were. And so their donations dropped significantly because they got a bad reputation. They used to be like the top charity, and then their donations have gone down because they haven't performed well in fulfilling their mission. Yeah. Um, so there's like a separate category for arts organizations that don't necessarily offer a charity, but you pay admission to go, but it's still a 501c3. How does mm -hmm. that? It's typically a 501c3 because it's still providing a, a public service. I think it's a 501c3 because the arts are considered a public good. Even if you go to a lot of shows, even though it's called admissions, I think there's certain things in there where if you read the ticket or read through the, the small print, it's actually a donation that you're making. So it would fall under the 501c3 and it would be tax deductible. Or a lot of times what they do, like a local opera, or the symphony. They might charge admissions, and that's sort of a separate for-profit thing, possibly, but then you can also make donations to the symphony. And most of the revenue comes from major donations. When you go to the symphony and you look at the bulletin, you see all the major donors on the back, or like the, the people who gave $1,000 this year. Antonio. I was going to add something. In Chicago, there's not-for-profit Paneras. Oh, and so you can basically be for free, but then they just suggest that whatever money you do pay goes okay. back to them so that yeah. they can feed, I think it's feed homeless people, uh -huh. I don't remember. But yeah, I went to one, it runs like a regular Panera, but they'll be like, this is your total, but you can pay whatever you want. Yeah. So if you only had $5, but your bill is 20 they don't care. Wow. It's interesting. What I like is all these hybrid models where they're trying something different or being a little bit more innovative, and at the end of class, we're going to look at one, it's actually a, an IU grad who started up this organization, but basically thinking through how can I accomplish my mission in the most effective way possible versus how can I maintain my nonprofit status. If that's your goal, there's something wrong with that. Because you don't set out like, I want to have a nonprofit. You set out to accomplish a social mission. And what's the best way to accomplish that mission? 
And most everything we're going to talk about today pertains explicitly to the 501c3s because they fall in that special niche of being tax exempt and donations are tax deductible. So all the other nonprofits are tax exempt, but your donations that you make to them are not tax deductible. Yeah. That's a real quick question. Yeah. Um, so then with the NFL, yeah. on the donor side, that's not tax exempt, but is there revenue that they create tax exempt? So donor level is not tax deductible. Deductible, yeah. And then revenue they make uh -huh. is tax exempt. But, and we'll go into this, that your money has to be spent on charitable activities or public serving activities or member serving activities. Like you can't, if you're a private company and you make money, you become wealthier. There's personal gain. Nonprofits can't, can't do that. They can't sort of say, hey, we have a $100,000 surplus, so let's give everyone a $10,000 bonus at the end of the year. Like they just, they have to say, well, let's invest in another capital building project or something, let's build another facility or let's expand. They can't just take it for personal gain. Okay. So this gives a baseline of some of what the tax code says, but again, what you really need to focus on is the 501c3s, and we'll talk slightly about the 501c4s, because they're the second most common. So how do you qualify for a 501c3 status? And there's two basic things. And the first one, and this was in the reading, but they're very strange. They're not very intuitive. What's the organizational test? Well, in order to qualify as being a 501c3, you need to pass the organizational test. And basically what that's saying is you must be an organization. Well, that sounds kind of obvious. But what's interesting about this, and this has happened a lot, let's say you're a musician, an aspiring musician, and you say, well, I want to be a nonprofit and allow my friends and family to make donations to help me launch my music career. You know, because there's a lot of startup costs to, to start a music career, and I want to solicit donations from people. And this has happened a lot, where people say, I kind of want to be my own nonprofit, and so people can donate and they can have tax deductions from that. Well, basically, what the IRS is saying is you can't be your own nonprofit. And so you need to be a clearly distinct entity of an organization. And so that means you need to be incorporated as an organization. And in order to be an organization to be recognized by the state and federal government, there's certain steps you go through to actually become an organization. Just like at IU, if you want to be a student organization, there's steps you go through to be an officially recognized student organization. So you can be a group that sort of hangs out. But typically, if you're involved with a student organization, it's registered with IU and we need to have a president and a vice president, you know, like board members in a sense, or officers. You need to have bylaws, you need to have a mission, you need to have an outline of your activities, you need to submit different things. So if you've ever been a president of an organization at IU, you know what I'm talking about. You even have to, I think, declare if you make money, what you do with the money and stuff like that. So the first one is you have to be an organization. It seems obvious, but it is a thing that you need to do. The second one is the operational test. Again, not a very intuitive term or helpful. It's like, well, what does that mean? Basically, what it's saying is that the operations, like what your organization does, must fall within the scope of permitted 501c3 activities. So that's this idea of public good or public charity that you're providing that's open and available to all people. So it is the food pantry, but it's also like an art museum. 
if it's open to the public or a park or a tutoring program that you're doing. But these are the only two tests. Basically, you need to be an organization, and your organization needs to do things that fall within the scope of charitable activities. I wish they would just say that versus operational tests and organizational tests, but that's how it's stipulated in the laws. It's even more confusing. This is, I think, one of the fascinating parts of nonprofit law is that there's a lot of wiggle room or there's a lot of ambiguity. So you have the organization test and the operation test, but the operation test basically says a substantial part of the organization's activities must be charitable. And it says that explicitly. A substantial part must be charitable. So it gives room for certain parts to be non-charitable, like having the bookstore on the side, or the museum that Carly was talking about, of charging admission to some people but not to everyone, or making it available if you can't afford it, but also charging admission. So, and it's, I think, intentional to not specifically define substantial. There's ambiguity in terms of well, how much is too much. So another thing it says is you cannot engage in substantial political activity. An example would be like a, a church that hosts a political candidate. You know, like when Donald Trump went to the church in Detroit, is that engaging in political activity? Well, they gave him a platform and there's a few thousand people who attend that church, and so that was, you know, good promotion for Donald Trump and his campaign. But the church didn't endorse Donald Trump, and the church didn't give money to Donald Trump's campaign. They just provided a platform for him to engage their member base. You can participate in political activity and lobbying. It just can't be substantial. So if you set up like an office in D.C. to lobby Congress explicitly and actively, that would probably be too much political activity. But it's not to say you can't do any political activity. It's very vague in this terminology. And why would this matter? Because you're kind of like, well, hey, I'm starting a food pantry. I have no interest in political activity. In fact, I hate politics. Well, as you get into the food pantry, you realize there's these zoning laws and city legislation that says you can't distribute food that's been sitting out for more than a day. If you went to Panera and said, hey, can we have your leftovers and redistribute them? There's city ordinances that say you can't redistribute leftover food because that's a violation of the public health code. And so then you go to the city council and you say, hey, can we change this? Like, we're doing this food pantry, and there's all these restaurants around the city that have leftover food, and we'd love to be able to take that leftover food and redistribute it, but the health code says food is more than a day old, you can't redistribute it. And so you all of a sudden find yourself engaging in political activity because you're lobbying city council to get them to change the law so that your food pantry can redistribute food. I mean, that's a small example, but it's an example where you quickly see the overlap between your benevolent activity and how city politics might get in the way with it. But the important thing to know is that you can participate in political activities. It just can't be the sole purpose and focus of your organization. Your organization is still food distribution but you might need to engage in the political process to help your organization be successful. And then cannot finance or campaign for a candidate or, or proposition. So the Trump Foundation gave money to the Attorney General in Florida who was running for office to be the Attorney General. So the Trump Foundation is like Google. You know, it's Trump set up his own foundation so he can give money to it. 
it's fine as long as that money goes towards charitable activities, but this money, the Trump Foundation made a donation to the Attorney General in Florida, which was explicitly financing the campaign of a political official, and so he got in trouble for that. So you can't give money to a campaign or like Prop 8 in California, which was the gay marriage proposition. Uh, a lot of churches were giving money to that initiative and they got in trouble because that was a political campaign that they were explicitly endorsing or financing. So candidates or propositions. That one's actually more clear cut. You just can't do it. But as far as political activity, you're allowed to do it to some extent. And then the last one which we talked about is that assets are currently dedicated to 501c3 purposes. So if you dissolve as a nonprofit and you shut down your business, you have to donate your assets to another 501c3. Or if you switch from being a nonprofit to being a for-profit company, you sort of need to maintain the nonprofit component and keep that separate and keep those assets going towards public charity activities. All of that is like the government. The government dictates all of this. But then there's also non-government regulators. You're not only accountable to the government, but you're also accountable to these people, which would be your donors. If you're doing something that maybe meets the IRS laws, but doesn't fulfill the mission of your organization, your donors are going to vote by withholding contributions. Professional associations, if you're part of a tutoring program, there's this national network of tutoring programs, and if you're doing something that's a little bit unscrupulous, there'll be pushback from the other tutoring organizations that are saying, hey, this group over here, they're not one of us. They're not playing by the rules, or they're not doing things in an ethical way. Watchdog organizations are these independent nonprofits who basically look at the activities of other nonprofits and they'll give you a score. How good are you at fulfilling your mission? You'll get a rating or a score by these watchdog groups. Or how good are you at using the funds that come in and using them for the purposes that you said you would? And that's what happened to the Red Cross, is that these watchdog groups came in and said, hey, the Red Cross isn't doing what they said they were doing. And so they blew the whistle on them. If you're a nonprofit, you're accountable to these watchdog groups and then the media. If the media snoops around and finds out that you're doing something that's not fulfilling the mission of your organization, they're going to call you out on it. How do you actually start a nonprofit? This is the point of nonprofit law. And in each state, it's different. So I'm going to give you the ones for Indiana. But if any of you are serious about starting a nonprofit, this website gives you actually a step by step. So it's complicated, but it's clear. The first step is choose a name for your organization. So it's this organizational test. You actually have to have an organization. You can't just have an idea. You can't copy someone else's name. You need a board of directors. Because there is no owner of the organization, the board functions as the governing body of the organization. So they're accountable to making sure that the organization fulfills the IRS laws and other activities of the organization. So you need a board. And then you need to officially incorporate your organization. So just like at IU, to be a student organization, you need to go and register. In the state of Indiana, there's a way to register your organization so that you're actually an organization. You can't just say, I'm an organization. And then you apply for an employer identification number. And again, any organization has to do this. If you're hiring people, you need to have an employer identification number. And then register with the state offices. So again, these are just bureaucratic steps to be officially recognized as an organization. 
the key step is apply for tax exemption. That's a federal tax exempt status. And so what's interesting about this is that say you've done all these first steps and you're actually operating as an organization, but you haven't gotten around filling out your Form 1023, and the Form 1023 is recognition that you're a tax exempt organization. So you could function as an organization and be, in a sense, fulfilling the letter of the law as a nonprofit and actually not pay taxes and not get in trouble as long as you're actually doing the things that the IRS says you need to be doing as a nonprofit. And then you have five years to submit your Form 1023. So you can go five years without paying taxes and there would be no repercussions. Like the IRS wouldn't come to you and say, why aren't you paying taxes? What Form 1023 is, it doesn't give you nonprofit status. It just gives you recognition as being a nonprofit. It's a strange thing. You can function as a separate entity, nonprofit organization, and not pay taxes. And normally you'd say, well, isn't that illegal to not pay taxes? Well, if you're actually functioning as a nonprofit, then you're within the law. And all that Form 1023 does is give you recognition. Like the IRS saying, yep, that's what you are. You said you're a nonprofit, and we're recognizing you as a nonprofit. If you look at the actual form, it's not applying for status, it's getting recognition you are a nonprofit. So tax exemptions can be retroactive. The only drawback is if you don't have this status, like the recognition, when people make donations, the donations are not tax deductible until you're recognized by the IRS as being a nonprofit. This is how you get started. So seeking 5013 status, I'll go through these quickly. We've talked about most of them. The advantages is you can run the operations of your organizations without being hindered or burdened by paying taxes. So you can just avoid paying not just revenue taxes, but sales taxes, property taxes, franchise taxes, unemployment taxes, capital gains taxes, all these taxes that can cut into your operations. Donations are tax deductible and you can use volunteers. So if you're a private company, you can't have this little team of volunteers because that's against the law. Like McDonald's, could be pretty savvy and say, hey, we're going to have some volunteers, and maybe you could then work your way up to being an employee, but you need to volunteer for at least a thousand hours before we even consider you, because we want to see if you really have what it takes. You can't do that. You have to hire people yet. How do you unpick internships? Internships, if you notice, one year maximum, and you can't renew it. So if you do an internship at a law firm, you can do it for one year, and at the end of that year, they either have to hire you or let you go. So internships do exist, but there's very clear guidelines. Disadvantages, you're limited on the activities that you can do. You can't lobby substantially. You can't endorse candidates. You can't unduly benefit a person in the sense of, like, I can't take all the profits and benefit myself from it. And then upon dissolution, assets must be donated to another 501c3. So don't think about this, how do I maintain my nonprofit status? It's thinking, hey, what would be the best vehicle to accomplish my social mission or the thing that I want to do? This last video that I'm going to show is uh, IU alum Will Hoey and his brother Chris Hoey, who I actually knew when he was a student at Stanford. They basically went into the private sector for a number of years and then went down to South America and started up this organization, a toy company. Now it's actually an L3C, which is a low profit organization, but what they're doing is accomplishing their social mission 
through what I would say is a, an innovative hybrid model. Tegu is a toy company on a mission to improve the way your kids play and create social change in one of the poorest nations in the Western Hemisphere. My name's Will. Two years ago, my brother Chris and I embarked on an adventure to create a different kind of toy company. On a business trip to Honduras, Chris was struck with a vision for creating something that would address poverty in a more sustainable way, by harnessing business. At the beginning, we set out to find what Honduras could offer the world. We quickly discovered an amazing supply of gorgeous hardwoods that could be used for all kinds of cool products. We learned that although the forests have been significantly abused, there were inspired efforts to make local wood harvesting more sustainable. Not long after this discovery, we stumbled upon some brilliant, classic wooden toys from Europe. We were impressed with the durability of the toys. They lasted generations. They weren't made of plastic. They were safe and all natural. These toys came to life through the imagination of the kids using them not with batteries or on-off switches. But though these toys had a certain magical quality, they were the kind of toy you would find in Grandpa's attic. And frankly, they are a little boring. So we set out to bring these classic wooden toys into the 21st century. We wanted to bring them from here, all the way to here. After spending over a year researching and developing, we reinvented the wooden block by adding our own twist. It was time to breathe new life into an old classic. By embedding powerful magnets inside classic building blocks, we've created a toy that unleashes the imagination, and we're proud to say that you won't find instruction manuals or on-off switches with our curiously attractive toys. Though they look simple, these Tegu blocks demand imagination and inspire serious creativity across all ages. With every set of Tegu blocks, you invest in an awesome toy for a kid or a kid at heart, and you also get the opportunity to make a real difference in Honduras. When you go to our website, you'll see that with each purchase, you get to choose how we help Honduras. One, you can help us replant the rainforest. Each tree we harvest creates more than 500 sets of Tegu blocks and you can choose to plant 12 trees for each set you buy. That means for each tree we use, we plant up to 6,000 saplings, and we think that's pretty good. Two, hundreds of kids work in the city trash dump in Tegucigalpa, Honduras. We've decided that it's time to get them into class. So we've partnered with an incredible school that takes these kids off the dump and puts them into classrooms. We won't stop working until every single one is given a chance at an education. Today, you can choose to make a difference. Invest in the kids that you care about by getting them higher quality toys, like Tegu blocks. When you do this, you'll open up a world of developmental and creative play, and you'll hugely impact the future of a country in great need. Connect to Tegu, and together, we'll work to change a nation. My main point with this is the focus is not on how do I maintain my nonprofit status or my tax exempt status. It's more being clear on what the social mission is and what's the best vehicle. So I outlined what the nonprofit pathway would be, but that's not necessarily the only pathway or the best pathway. We're done. Thank you.